This is the Blueprint Podcast, bringing you the latest in cyber defense and security operations from top Blue Team leaders. Blueprint is brought to you by the SANS Institute and is hosted by SANS Senior Instructor John Hubbard. And now, here's your host, John Hubbard. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a very special season of the Blueprint Podcast. If you are just jumping in here this season, we're walking chapter by chapter through the 11 strategies of a world-class cybersecurity operations center released through MITRE and written by our authors, Ingrid Parker, Carson Zimmerman, and Catherine Nerler, all of which I have joining me today to guide us through the content. How are we all doing today? Great. Great. How are you? you? Fantastic. Ready to jump in? Let's do it. All right. So um, in our last two episodes, if you didn't catch those for listeners, uh, we had chapter zero on fundamentals and chapter one on knowing what you're protecting and why. And those are two really important pieces for building any SOC foundation. Uh, And now we're going to continue on talking about how we need to give the SOC the proper authority uh, it needs to do its job correctly. So this is a shorter chapter, but another one that's incredibly important in my mind. And um It's one of those things that I think we have some really incredible, even though maybe somewhat shorter points to make for this one. So uh, for this, uh, let's start out with our basic question that we're kind of kicking off every episode with, which is what inspired this particular chapter and why is giving the SOC the authority to do its job so important? I can I can go this of all the chapters in second edition, 11 strategies that changed the least. I would say this one changed the least from first edition. And there's a, there's a couple reasons why, right? It's the notion that you need a piece of paper where what the SOC does and who it does those things for at a high level uh, is it's critical to so many SOCs. And one of the things we'll talk about a little bit today is how much that organization needs to write down in detail and how often that needs to be revised is highly dependent on the culture of the constituency that the SOC serves. But I have noticed in my travels that SOCs often get caught. They're slowed down or even hit brick walls when what needs to be written down doesn't match the culture of the organization and others just tell them to get lost. And, and that's particularly challenging in the heat of the moment. And so, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Ingrid or whoever was was just going to say, and (laughs) and so writing down and putting it in the charter, you know, you might put more, you might put less, but it really helps to start build those boundaries around what the SOC is supposed to do. And when you start then getting into how are you measuring your SOC? How are you, you know, knowing if you're even doing the job that you set out to do, this is the place where you can codify that and figure out if you're actually doing the things and hitting the objectives you even started to do for building this SOC. Yeah. And just to build on that, um, some of the purpose of the charter is actually the process of the charter. So you're meeting with senior uh, people in your organization so that they know when something happens, oh, wait, we talked about this when we were writing the charter. So some of it is it's handy to get the buy-in of people around you uh, so that when something you don't have to do that in the heat of the moment. And that's part of what a charter does for you. 
So, yeah, one of the big things in the beginning of this uh, chapter is just talking about the SOC charter, right, which is this document that is kind of a foundational kind of keystone document that a lot of things are probably going to flow out of. Uh, And one of the things that you have in here is kind of what a charter is and why it needs to exist. So what's the best place to start when it comes to creating your first SOC charter for the average SOC? Well, I think that goes along kind of with what Catherine talked about. Um, I'll steal a little bit of thunder from Chris Crowley, um, who, when he talks about building socks, one of the things he relies on really heavily is the notion of a steering committee for the sock. Um, I tend to agree in the sense that, you know, regardless of what you call it, the notion is, is that the sock exists because other executives often in IT and risk management and governance decided that it needed to exist, right? So it's exactly what, what Catherine is talking about. And it, and it's, there's different dimensions. There's what functions and services does it provide? And we talked about that before, and we'll, we'll talk about it even more in the next chapter. And then one of the other important dimensions, particularly in large enterprises is which assets, organizations, users, et cetera, does it, does it serve? Um, and that's also really important later on when we talk about outsourcing. Um, you know, I've noticed that, um, you know, going back to one of the points I made is that when there's ever uh, uh, contractors or outsourcing involved, the importance of drawing finer lines in writing around charter or subordinate authorities goes up. Because you've got to ensure those seams uh, don't have gaps. Yeah, so it's kind of a concept of operations and maybe how you are going to interact with those external groups if you have those out there. Uh, A scoping document, uh, as I understand it, right, to kind of say this is the stuff you are absolutely responsible for protecting. And on the flip side, what are you not probably as well? So this is probably something that, that every analyst needs to probably read and be very, very familiar with, right? Because it defines the boundaries of what they're actually protecting. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. That's true. And and just to add to um, the boundaries are, are always a conversation. So there's partners that, that may be outside of the organization. Sometimes there's really sensitive groups within an organization that don't want the SOC to have anything um, to do with them. They're not monitoring it or anything. And so those are conversations that need to happen during that charter. So defining what is in for the SOC and what is not in for the SOC. Another area is these clouds that we ha- keep having, you know, so that's outsourcing of the technology. And so knowing how the uh, the incident response and that kind of stuff happens operationally is important to know as well. So just building on what Carson was saying. Uh, I'll add one more thing. And that is, remember we talked about composite inventory in strategy one. Um, one of the things that can make this very real for everyone involved, the SOC and otherwise, is ensuring that the definition of the SOC scope is realized in how that composite inventory is divvied up. This is particularly important when there's any any outsourcing or federation or um, hierarchy of SOCs uh, in place, especially like this the situation that that Catherine talked about is, is, oh, you don't want to do, you don't want our help for the following things. Great. We're going to tag that in our inventory and we're going to out. 
Yeah, for sure. <laughs> there's, um, I can say that there's for sure, like in, in terms of charters, right? One of the questions I get most commonly about these is like, what has to be in it? Is there an example? Things like that. Um, I have not run into any examples out in, in my experience because I think some of them, they're, they're so kind of customized that a lot of people are not going to be publishing this. And even if they didn't, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. But I do want to call out to everyone who's listening that inside this chapter in section 2.1.2, uh, there is a list of the elements of a sock charter. And so there's a whole bunch of great kind of brainstormed items in there. Deploy, operate, maintain active and passive monitoring capabilities, proactively and reactively scan hosts respond directly to confirmed incidents things like that right and so there's a great list of kind of here are the types of things you definitely want to include uh, in your charter for anyone that might be thinking at this point hey maybe i don't have a sock charter where do i start how do i write that uh that that's where i would point everyone for that one um some people might not have a sock charter and think well do i have to write one uh if you don't have a sock charter, have you seen any specific problems kind of come out of that? Kind of ask the flip side of the question here. <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's an area where you know the sock charter gives you the authority and responsibilities to work with other teams because a lot of times when you're trying to do um, you know detection remediation, you're working with engineering, you're working with your admins, you're working with um, maybe you have an insider threat program, all of these other organizations, and this basically is something that you can hold up and say, no, 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 we're supposed to work together. I have a responsibility for this. Um, and if you don't have that, it becomes a little more challenging sometimes if you're working with those other organizations, if you're trying to get data from them, um, especially when you get into some of the legal requirements, making sure that you've actually got it solidified that this is what you're supposed to do and you are allowed access to that data um, is really important. And so you can run into a lot of a lot of challenges if you don't actually have this documented. Yeah, and I want to I want to parse something out there, pun intended, um, in terms of the authority to do something versus the responsibility. One of the things that we think about having in the SOC charter is enabling it to do certain things that may not be its responsibility. And I'll pick out uh, scanning, for example. Um, you know, what when you're writing a charter, one of you the you the listeners don't necessarily get caught up in who's responsible for things, but rather focus on having a crisp statement, not measured in dozens of pages, but single digit pages, perhaps even single digit paragraphs, the things that the SOC is allowed and enabled to do. So even for, so for example, during incident response, the SOC may need to go scan some, some, something on demand, even if it's not their responsibility to have a sustained scanning program. So just think about that nuance. Don't let the fine division of roles and responsibilities during what I'll characterize as peacetime drag down your ability to write crisp statements in this high-level doc. Yeah, I know there's been plenty of times kind of in my experience and, and plenty of times students have told me about where they're like, hey, something's going on. They go to the group where, you know, it has the affected asset. They're like, hey, I need your logs, right? Or whatever, because they didn't have them. And they're like, no, who are you, right? I'm not going like, to give you my data. <laughs> that's actually like the top. That's actually like one of the top things is is an incident response. It's, it's getting digital artifacts and it's telling them others to do things. And this goes back to that cultural piece. Sometimes in some organizations, you need everything written down. And if it's not written down, people are going to reply to you with with fruity hand signals. Whereas in other organizations, they might be like, oh, you have security in your name. We should participate and listen. Yeah. 
yeah, we definitely don't want to be like scrambling and wasting time trying to decide who's allowed to do what, right? When when things are going on and the attacker is progressing, it's not a case of like, oh, I don't want to give you my data. Like you need to keep things moving, right? Like we talked about with the OODA loop before. So right. um, yeah, this is in my mind, one of those things where you show up, if someone doesn't believe you, you pull out the charter, you're like, here it is, it's signed, right? Management said I can get this data, right? And hopefully <laughs> that helps smooth things over. So I think that's one of the most important things here. And, and if people are wondering, do I need a charter? Uh, if you've ever run into that problem, that might be the thing that a charter helps solve for you. Um, anything else on charters before we kind of shift to talking about um, a very related topic, the organizational alignment and working with other groups and kind of where you report up through? Uh, yeah, it's what, really important to know what's not in the charter as well, right? So some organizations, some SOCs are not allowed to do the actual incident response, which is kind of odd, you know, so they can find stuff and then they have to hand it off somewhere else. If there's things like that, um, that's really important to document as well. So not just yeah, what you I, are doing, but what you're not doing. Yeah, <laughs> especially yep. if it's a key SOC function normally. Yeah, definitely. Ingrid? Yeah, and I would say practically, you know, you create the charter, it's signed by a particular executive, you need to be aware of changes in your organization and changes in expectations. And so, you know, a charter should be one of those documents that gets reviewed periodically to say, oh, is that is that person still here? Do we still have these authorities? Have they moved on? Is there somebody else who should be signing this? Um, or again, has the organization changed in a way that there are different things you need to be monitored or need to have access to? Um, so very much think of it as a, it's not the thing you do. It's the, one of the first things you do in a starter sock, but it doesn't mean it's the last, you know, never to be seen again. Um, so definitely make sure it's on that rotation of how often are you going to review it? Yeah. yeah. And, and dove, dovetailing off what Catherine said, you know, there's a laundry list, literally almost in 2.1.4 of all these other policies that the sock is going to lean on. And it starts with things like, a consent to monitoring policy and an acceptably used policy. So much of what the SOC does is going to be reliant on those. But to her point, you know, there's going to be a, a much longer list of policies or other similar charters by other organizations where they say in writing, oh, this is what we're responsible for. And again, some of them might be really short. Some of them might not exist. But, uh, you know, warning signs, if they don't exist, um, you know, that, got, that lack of clarity could get you in trouble. Yeah, there was one other thing um, along with that I wanted to kind of rebring back up. As you mentioned, steering committees, right? And we didn't really, I mean, you kind of explained what that was, but it, can we make a, like a, a very clear connection? Like how does having a steering committee tie into what goes into the charter and how it evolves over time? And what does a steering committee look like? Uh, sure. I mean, generally speaking, the steering committee is formed by the major stakeholders, uh, that represent the interests of the people that the SOC serves. So that will include uh, potentially, uh, you know, managers or representatives of uh, major IT system owners. Um, and uh, that would potentially, of course, include, you know, OT and cloud and all that good stuff, you know, Um and it's going to include probably somebody from an office of CISO, um, even if the SOC is organized under that area, which we'll talk about that in a little bit, right? And, and you know, potentially others, um, you know, regular IT operations, you know, potentially other parts of the business. Um, and that's where you're forming those uh, common perceptions about what's in and out of scope for the SOC and its dependencies. And that leads right into what you write down here. Is that and I would go ahead. 
Oh, I was going to differentiate between a steering committee and a group that we talked about in uh, strategy one, which is kind of these advocates within different organizations, mm-hmm. because a, a steering committee will tend to be more executive, will um, provide some general guidance, you know, often is even tied to the board and the direction that you're going. And that's different than the day-to-day group. So you might also have a group of people in these same organizations, but that are working in a more tactical way with you. Um, so it definitely, you know, think about the fact that there are different levels of people that you want to bring in for different elements, but strictly for the charter, you're probably looking for more senior buy-in across the major units within your organization. Yeah. And I, I guess to add on to this, um, you know, it sounds like these things are for big organizations, but I want to point out, this is really important. If there's like part of you doing incident response, you like you have two halves of people doing it, uh, the charter and the steering committee, they can help you bridge some of that um, extra time that's needed to, to interact with folks. So a steering committee can really help you along, especially if you're a really tiny team. So I've, I would encourage the steering committee, no matter what you do. Absolutely. Uh, a crisp mission statement, crisp charter is going to benefit you no matter how big or small you are. And it doesn't take long to put it together. Is um, I'm trying to kind of channel questions that I often get, like in 551, where we're talking about these things and, and uh, charters and steering committees. Uh, the other the question I commonly get is like, is the steering committee like, a, is it a quarterly meeting with everyone? Is it constant communication? Is it an email list? Like, how do you implement that? Is there any specific guidance around that? Or is it kind of whatever works per organization? Yeah, I think some of that's uh, a culture question. It'll depend on your organization. If you're really small, though, maybe it's uh, just going around uh, as an incident responder and meeting the right people that belong on that steering committee. And it's a little more informal. And then you jot it down and just kind of follow it up. Um, you know, and then you can do more formal things as you get larger. Perfect. Yeah. So the next kind of uh, section of this chapter here, 2.2, is on organizational alignment. And it starts with saying, you know, the SOC draws its authorities, budget, and mission and focus from the constituency to which it belongs. And you kind of go into here and talking about a bunch of different facets of considering, like, ultimately, who does the SOC report to and and up through? Because a lot of what they're going to be able to do and a lot of the pros and cons of of each uh, is going to determine their effectiveness, right? So... Any kind of opening statements on what um, you want to get across in terms of thinking about where to place the SOC in, inside the org, whether it's under the CISO, whether it's under the COO, CIO, kind of any of those things? Um, I think we've seen all of these. Um, and this goes back to that culture question of, you know, what makes sense within your organization? You know, a very common one is under a CISO, um, but that's not the only place you can be successful. And it's really about within your organization, um, what are the responsibilities of those more senior organizations? So what is their scope? And do they have the authority to support you with your SOC and what you're trying to do? Um, and are they going to be able to give you the care and attention that you need in the SOC and not have it just be like, oh, and the SOC was shoved under here and I don't know what it does. And, you know, like I've got this budget, but I can't really give it over to them because I don't have, you know, enough and those types of things. And so... Um, to the extent that if you're like a SOC manager and you can kind of influence that, that's great. A lot of times you're just going to be handed and told like, hey, this is where you belong. This is who you're going to report to. Or it may shift over time. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of our, especially larger government organizations that are moving the SOC around a lot and trying to figure out who it should align to and why it should align there and where the budgets fit and who has responsibilities for things. Um, 
But I think across all of these, it is um, creating that relationship with that organization, knowing where you fit in um, and getting, you know, we're talking more about metrics and measures and communications, but it's making sure whoever that senior executive is that has you as, you know, your home, that you are engaged with them and you're helping them to understand what the mission of the SOC is. So I I was going to add on, I, you know, Catherine, excuse me, Ingrid took a bunch of the words out of my mouth that she usually does. I would say succinctly, the the question of SOC placement is perennially this tension between being in a cybersecurity org where it feels like it's at home and being in some kind of IT operations organization where it may also feel like home. And it's always this tension because often it's one or the other, but it, it's rarely both. And this is is how we often and and there's also tension with it belonging to a business unit um, that it's oriented on. And and this often makes feel like it's really tough trade-offs. And it's it's absolutely true. And I've seen, you know, all permutations of this, and it's always giving something up. So, and this is this is how we end up in conversations like, well, the SOC could be underneath the CISO. In fact, the, the SOC lead themselves, I've seen more than a few times, is, is designated a deputy CISO, particularly in smaller organizations. Um, what we don't see today that we might have seen 20 years ago is the SOC is it for cybersecurity, right? The, I think the days are mostly gone when the only people doing cybersecurity in an enter- enterprise is just the SOC, right? We're past that. Um so, you know, it's really interesting to see how this stuff manifests. Yeah. So, and those trade-offs can um, vary. From, like if you're in an IT organization, the trade-offs and this tension are around performance and we got to do things faster and we're going to implement this really cool new application or this real real cool way of looking at the world. And um, and the SOC trying to, well, we still need to monitor it. We need to be able to see things Um there are incidents. We don't know about this new um, technology that you're deploying. So there's always going to be that tension. And by the way, that tension exists at higher levels. So if you're in a CISO organization, the CISO is going to have to have those conversations with, with the IT teams as well. So you don't really get away from the tension. It's a matter of where is it in the organization? Yeah. And yeah. I'll add one more thing. Uh, and that is where I get worried uh, is when the SOC is placed organizationally in a way that draws it away from its core focus of finding people in cyberspace doing bad things and then doing something about finding those bad things. And when it strays way off into the depths of compliance land or the depths of Oh, what what news article did the CIO or CISO or CEO read today? And chasing after that and getting randomized to bits is where I really get worried. Yeah, the uh, the core focus and maintaining it, right, I think is what we're trying to optimize for, right, in terms of placement of the SOC, because that is the core mission, right, is like make sure none of this terrible stuff ever happens. Um I don't remember which of the three of you had said it, but right at the beginning of this, someone said like most people, you know, pick the CIO or the the CISO office for the the group to ultimately report up to. Um, Why is that the most common choice? I think 
Because the SOC is often part of that larger security program that Carson was talking about, and especially as CISOs have, you know, become fairly commonplace in organizations, then they see a more natural alignment there. Um, prior to that, you know, you go back a decade plus, you did see them sitting more with the CIO, more with other types of organizations. Um, but I think there's a recognition that there's inputs and outputs from the SOC to those other security programs. Um, so when you talk about risk management, the SOC can help identify risk. They're not responsible for it. Somebody else may do that. When you're talking about you're putting those preventive technologies in place, you know, setting up your identity programs, doing those types of things, you know, the SOC is going to have a, a say in that and they're going to want to get the data for it. And so there's just a, a natural fit with a lot of those pieces um, that helps, you know, especially with sometimes the technologies. Um, you can talk about those technologies and the kind of budgeting that you need to do for them in, in similar ways. Yeah, I would add a couple of other reasons as well. Um, I, I think so in, I don't know if federal leads in this area, but there are laws that require the CIO to be responsible for the security of an organization in federal organizations. And so, uh, among those, um, absolutely the CIO wants something to do with the security operations and how good it is. Um, I think also because security operations is operational, uh, a lot of times there's a knock or an IT operational element too, and it just kind of goes hand in hand. So I think those play into the reasons as well as what Ingrid said. Yeah, yeah I, I see you You listed a couple other common choice. Well, not maybe not common, but other possible choices uh, in this section as well. And CIO, CISO is at the top, but um, speaking of operations, the COO is one other location that people might be talking about. Uh, why would someone choose to put their SOC under a COO instead of a CISO? I can offer a couple thoughts there. And for what it's worth saying, COO is is shorthand for uh, different oper- different orientations of the SOC where, you know, maybe maybe it's a, in a federated state where maybe you've got a large sprawling organization and you've got SOCs that are placed in a business arm of a greater enterprise. And that absolutely changes their focus because they're they're less worried on like this central kind of corporate stuff and they're more thinking about you know how do we keep the business going and how do we integrate the SOX use cases in the business which we all recognize is something they've got to do regardless so getting back to the tension thing it's sort of like you know, you're going to be, the SOC is going to be placed somewhere and then it's going to have to offset the tension that creates with where it's not. We'll be back after a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode, then you're undoubtedly interested in building the strongest security operations team that you can. For those who want to go even deeper, did you know that SANS has not one, but two courses that cover security operations centers as well? For the leaders, managers, and directors out there, my co-author Mark Orlando and I offer 551, Building and Leading Security Operations Centers. This course covers building your team, your physical and virtual workspace, getting the right data into your tools, and then focusing on security priorities through everyday execution of important security tasks and building the best SOC team possible. For the technical practitioners out there, my course SEC 450, Blue Team Fundamentals, Security Operations and Analysis, is designed to cover everything you need to jump in being the best SOC analyst that you can be. We cover important data types, SOC tools, security logs, malware, analysis technique, automation, and much, much more. 
In addition, if you want to prove you can deliver the best on any security team, both courses have an accompanying certification available from GIAC. That's the GSOM for 551 and the GSOC for 450. Check out both courses and free demos available on the SANS website. You can get registered today for an in-person course at one of our many events, or go to On Demand and take either class anywhere at your own pace. Thanks for listening. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, there's a lot of different, uh, I guess, other options as well beyond the COO. We have the CSO. We have you have peered with network operations uh, under IT ops and some other things as well. Um, you know, given this need for focus on on certain activities and certain types of organizations, or if you have a federated or hierarchical SOC, um, where might you use one of these other options, like a, a CSO or um, you know, peered with network operations center and IT ops uh, as one of the other ones you have listed. Um, yeah. what, what would bring someone in that direction? I think the NOC is particularly interesting. Um, I've worked with a number of organizations that have uh, merged or unmerged from the NOC uh, for various reasons. Uh, and the merges often occur for um, trying to gain efficiencies, really trying to say, hey, you know, a lot of times your ticketing system might use the same thing. You might be looking at the same data. You know, something like NetFlow might be used by your network operations for monitoring health of the network where the, you know, your SOC is going to be using that for a security perspective. And so um, organizations will see this and say, hey, there's overlaps. Um, where we've run into challenges is recognizing that the skill sets between those two organizations are actually very different. Um, and if an organization tries to say, oh, I can use somebody over in the SOC, but next week I'm going to rotate them over to the NOC, they, even though you might be looking at the same data, you're not looking at it the same way. I'm seeing these big head shakes from my co-authors yeah. of, yes, we all know this. And so we have found that from um, kind of that you know, entry point in, so if, you're, if you have a help desk, if you have some of those basic areas where people are saying, hey, something's going on, I need to report it, that is a place where you can gain some efficiencies. You can have a, some overlap in tooling, you know, especially around like incident ticking systems. But the ones that have been really successful with that merge have accepted that there are two different missions. They are equal to each other, so they don't make one subordinate to the other. Um, and then they both have a kind of the same peering point within the organization where they go up to the same person. And that person is then responsible for kind of you know, figuring out the ties between them. So the are we going to shut this down or are we going to let it run? I mean, that's often the tension that comes between the knock and the sock. And so somebody at an equal level has to be able to make that decision. Um, and hopefully it's not too far up in the organization. Um, so that I think is a really interesting one where there are opportunities for efficiencies, but you have to be very, very careful. Um, and I've seen a lot of organizations that have, have struggled with it even while they're trying to implement it. Yeah. You know, as I was reading this section, I was reminded of a time back when, when I was working as a SOC analyst, uh, we were kind of getting shuffled around, right? We worked in a data center and uh, we had a, previously a conference room and then we kind of moved out of the conference room and then we kind of went back and forth and all over the place. And there was one point where we were sitting in the knock, right? Like they were like, here's a little extra, you know, we had one of the big like movie theater style, huge yeah. screens in the front, big U shape of desks. But like uh, we didn't like the desks, so we had like another section, and we we're like, "Hey, can we have a little island over here?" Anyway, they built us desks in there, and, and we worked in there alongside with all the people in the knock, and um, we definitely did have a little bit of that cooperation going on. But at least from my experience in that particular situation, I would say ninety nine percent of the time um, we didn't really need to interact with them in a lot of different ways. Like we, our tools kind of took care of what we needed to. So I would say you know that's an interesting um, thing, and it kind of meshes with 
with, you know, what my experience was in that is like, uh, you kind of have different concerns, a lot of, you know, incidents may or may not require that kind of coordination. But uh, in certain situations, that might be one way that you can maybe report up in this way, but still get the communication benefits of working where you're in the same room, but maybe you report in different places and kind of blend some of those approaches. Have you seen anyone else do anything like to that extent or uh, kind of try to get it both ways at the same time? Oh, I've, I've, I'm, I'm having, you know, a combination of dreams and nightmares returning to me, right? Because I, I experienced a similar situation, you know, back in the day, I would say this is yet another place where I'm going to reiterate that the socks regular engagement ranging from was that you to help me understand this alert to what systems are you putting in place next quarter is critical. And it doesn't matter where it's located. In fact, if you're doing that right, the sock is not necessarily going to feel like it's got to be next to the knock. And I would also offer, we're using the term knock here. Um, I think when we think of that, we're thinking of all things IT and OT operations, particularly in the case, you know, you might not have a network, right? If you're all cloud, right? We're just using old parlance because it's easy for us to wrap our minds around it. Yeah. So in those situations, it may not even make sense, right? New org, no, no real like data center, no one sitting, you know, connecting cables to anything. Right. It's all in the cloud, totally different game, right? So yeah, that's one of those features where you kind of have to, or factors where you have to consider, you know, does that even make sense for us? And how does that weave in with what we have to do? Um, the last thing you had listed here was uh, having a sock embedded inside a specific mission or business unit. Could you speak a little bit to maybe where you've seen that or why you might want to do something like that? Yeah, so uh, I think we've seen a, a lot of different kinds of um, variations on that. Um, some of them were uh, like if it's a large business unit, like the main um, business for a particular organization, um, being inside as the SOC, um, at least having a representative sitting with the mission, you really understand where the important stuff is. Back to the composite in asset inventory and where are you storing things? Are they in a cloud environment? You have a lot more, um, you know, ability and, and context to work directly with a mission unit. So the context is key to everything we do in a SOC anyway. Uh, if you're in a mission um, area, it can help you with that. And of course, there's drawbacks too. I can hand that over to someone. <laughs> I think a lot of this, this part is thinking about where are the boundaries drawn within your organization? You know, so if you have enterprise email and that is across your entire organization, it doesn't really make sense to break it up by a business unit and say, well, you're responsible for the email for your part of the organization. But if you do have particular technology systems, um, you know, data accesses, user bases, everything else that can be somewhat separated, then you can, you know, and they're going to be measured and maybe you have dis different risk models across your organization, then it can be really successful because you are trying to protect things in a way that is unique to that part of the organization. Um, and so I think you see this when you have large organizations that have multiple business units, you have acquisitions, you have other types of things um, that make the organization so it's not complete, completely consistent across where you're at. Yeah. And in this case, if you're a really small incident response team or SOC, I would recommend against being buried inside a business unit to, to Ingrid's point. 
There was one thing I was thinking about as I was reading this section, and, and this isn't in part of the book, but I think there's more kind of conversation gathering around this. So some of the folks over in the uh, kind of Google security group have been talking about this idea of the autonomic sock. I don't know. Has anyone read anything about that? Kind of like embedding security people specifically in certain projects to kind of own the security of that project. It sounds very similar to this, right? Um, any thoughts on, on, on that sort of approach? And are we going to go that way in the future where we have kind of a more distributed security group and every you know project has their own security person i think we we're going to spend a lot of time on that in in sections uh three and ten perfect Um, all right so we can save that one for a uh for a future episode because we got a lot to unpack there apparently all right um anything else in terms of where to put the sock uh on the org chart and reporting before we wrap this one up no i would just tie it back into the charter So acknowledge where you're at in that organization. And that's also going to drive what you need to make sure is in and out of that charter so that it's it's very clear. Because if you're in a particular part of the organization, there may be assumptions about what you do. And you can use that charter to help clarify what your mission is within the space that you've been assigned. Yeah. And no matter where you are in an organization, that steering committee that we had mentioned earlier is a really important um, aspect of it. Yeah, definitely. Getting that kind of uh, perfect, customized, you know, tailored suit kind of fit, right? The SOC has a certain, uh, you know, mission in, in every organization, and there's probably not one recipe that we can just give everyone that's going to work. So it's really a question of talking with stakeholders, thinking about how you're really being measured, what you're responsible for, and finding that right kind of mix of everything and putting it all together, right? All right. Well, I think that probably uh, wraps up chapter two. And uh, anything else before we get going? Any other final kind of thoughts or checks uh, on that? It's not exciting. It is important. Yep. Right on. All right. Fantastic. Well, in our next episode, what we're going to be covering is uh, uh, strategy three, which is build a SOC structure to match your organizational needs. So now that we've kind of got some of this groundwork laid, we're going to be talking about um, where does the SOC uh, actually get built, physical versus virtual SOCs, and some other kind of exciting stuff uh, about building the the SOC itself and how we make all of this stuff. Once we've aimed at the right thing and defined what we need, uh, how we make all that work. So uh, for all our listeners, make sure you subscribe to your favorite podcast aggregator to Blueprint so you get all the new episodes. And if you want to check us out on youtube the sans cyber defense channel is going to have the videos for these episodes as well i will have the link to both of those in the show notes and thank you again everyone for joining us for this episode and we'll catch you on the next one bye